I'm Jeff Gibson. And I am Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome. Hello. To the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we kick off our love of movies with the weekend review what movies and tv shows we've been watching since the last episode move on to the main event which is a main review or topic of discussion and then finish up with film faves our respective lists of our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic this however will be a different episode because last episode and this episode we are kind of setting aside the weekend review partially because in the last episode something horribly went wrong and we lost the weekend review segment that we recorded so uh, we have seen quite a bit of stuff to share with you and what we're going to do is parse that out record it in a bonus episode at some point hopefully in the near future so this episode, just like last episode, our No Time to Die review, will not have a week in review segment. Also, our film fave segment will not be our typical countdown of favorite movies per se, because our topic this time will be our favorite movie scores. We'll talk more about that and what that process was like for us after our main event, which is in this episode, our review of Dune by Denis Villeneuve. So this is a something we've been looking forward to for a long time. Let's hop in and get started with our review of Dune. Did you see? There's a crusade coming. Do you often dream things that happen just as you dream them? Yes. The test is simple. Remove your hand from the box and you die. What's in the box? Pain. You inherit too much power. You have proven you can rule yourself. Now you must learn to rule others. Something none of your ancestors learned. My father rules an entire planet. He's losing it. He's getting a richer one. He'll lose that one too. Arrakis is a death trap. I'll kill them. This is an extermination. They're picking my family off one by one. Let's fight like demons. An animal caught in a trap will gnaw off its own leg to escape. What will you do? One day, the legend will be born. All of civilization depends on it. The future, I can see it. 
loves, not fear. Fear is the mind killer. My Lord Duke. Where the fear is gone, only I will remain. And that was from the trailer to Denis Villeneuve's Dune, a movie we have been looking forward to for close to two and a half years now. When we review a movie, we like to first talk about the good, what worked for us about a movie, what were its strengths. Um, Then we talk about what was bad, what were its flaws, what sucked about a movie, What were its weaknesses? And then we weigh whether or not the good outweighs the bad and give a score before moving on to spoilers and final thoughts. This film, Dune, directed by Denis Villeneuve, is an adaptation of Frank Herbert's science fiction novel, much highly regarded sci-fi novel, about the son of a noble family entrusted with the protection of the most valuable asset and most vital element in the galaxy again it is directed by denis villeneuve who has done such favorites of ours as arrival blade runner 2049 and sicario this film has quite the impressive cast though because it stars timothy chalamet rebecca ferguson zendaya oscar isaac jason momoa stellan skarsgård josh brolin javier bardem dave batista charlotte rampling and more as if that wasn't enough so the release of this film has is something that i think is worth mentioning first because this film was supposed to come out in december of 2020 it was one of the most anticipated movies of 2020 and there was a rash of news leading up to april of 2020 because then the pandemic hit right and what happened the movie got bumped was it immediately a year do you remember or was it like okay we'll give it six months do you recall i think that perhaps it was a let's see what happens at christmas and then it got pulled maybe a month and a half two months before it got That's right, because the uh, anticipation was, surely we will get this figured out and the pandemic will not be a problem after a few months. Ha ha. And then they're like, okay, yeah, like October or September time. They're like, yeah, we should pull this thing. So, yeah, they bumped it a year almost to October to now. And then come December... Warner Brothers was like, you know what we're going to do? I'll tell you what we're going to do, new HBO Max subscribers and people who hadn't quite subscribed to HBO Max. We're going to release our entire 2021 slate on HBO Max, day and date. You don't have to go to the theater, which some people were like, yay. 
and the entire film industry was like, what? <laughs> Including Denis Villeneuve, who wrote an open uh, letter basically slamming Warner Brothers for this decision. And I can't remember if it was him or Christopher Nolan who also slammed Warner Brothers for this. But one of them had said that these creators who went to bed one night thinking they were working for the greatest in a film studio in the mm. world and yeah. woke up the next morning to find out that they were working for the world's worst streaming service. So it was quite a big thing, but apparently Warner brothers relented in the face of Denis Villeneuve and was like, okay, we'll release Dune in theaters also in addition to HBO max. And then what'd they do? Shannon, we were talking about this on the ride home. They changed their minds. Sort of, yeah, they last minute. They changed their minds. They're like, oh, look at that. It came out a day earlier on HBO Max. Oops. It's like they're creating a system to fuck people. Yeah. Like Danny Villeneuve. So the whole release of this movie, which is one of the biggest events of the year and was definitely positioned at one point to be one of the biggest box office earners forecasted to be that has just been completely botched and we'll see in a few days at the time of you listening to this we'll see what the actual weekend report ended up being of how well this film did compared to other especially compared to other pandemic releases so i just thought i before we really got into the meat of the movie i thought we'd kind of get that out of the way this is how things went down and any sort of thoughts or impressions we have on that. And I think based on what Shanna said, we kind of not fans of how Warner Brothers handled this. No. <laughs> okay. I mean, like, I I don't want to pay attention to bad behavior. Like, this is bad behavior. Yeah. Bad Warner Brothers, bad. Yeah, and it may have actually affected uh, screenings like ours. We went on late Saturday so basically, this thing had been out for a day and a half, almost full two days before we saw it. And there was like maybe a dozen people on the screening, which is great for an uninterrupted movie going experience, but not so great for, you know, wanting to really like make sure this thing earns every Yeah, dollar. if you're creating, if you have a system where it's always been, let's see how it performs, then we'll give you more money to make another one. You just kind of fucked them. And now we have this movie that clearly was made in all manners to be one of three or one of four. I don't know. Six, yeah, we don't, whatever. Yeah, let's get into that later. But yes, the, it is definitely important for this thing to uh, do well in the theaters. And I think Denis Villeneuve created the film with that in mind and with every confidence that everything was going to be just fine <laughs> up to a certain point. So anyway, with all that said, Shanna, let's talk about the movie and also what was good about it. Tell us a little bit about your history with the property of Dune. This is a novel from, I think, I could be wrong. I double check myself. I think it was written in the 70s or 80s. No, 70s or 60s. And it was first adapted to the screen by David Lynch. Interesting story reading the behind the scenes of how well that went and why David Lynch 
What is it word? What's the word? He veered away from his normal style. No, no, no. He he rejects. Uh, he doesn't. He he like he uh, hates the movie. Basically, I'm trying to find the right word for it. Hmm. This other property was made, and it's been almost 40 years since anybody has touched it since. So, Shanna, let's talk about your history with it. Tell us what your what your experience is, what your knowledge is with the story and everything. My experience with this film is that I was never going to watch the original. I didn't have an interest in it. It seemed very uh, of its time cinematography wise and even though it was David Lynch and I really enjoy David Lynch most of the time I wasn't going to watch it but when we found out that Denis Villeneuve was going to remake Dune in his own unique special way I thought yes okay let's go see what exists so that we have something to compare to but had you read the book before all do I look like the kind of person that reads a book not really. I'm just going to I'm going to put it out there guys. I have ADHD. Reading is not a thing for me. I guess I could do the audiobooks and perhaps I will if mm. Danny Villeneuve, you know, continues to make these gets to make the rest of these films. But no, I've never read them. Okay. I see that they've reprinted the cover that there's been a reprinting Oh, often, yeah. And it's quite beautiful right now. It's very appealing, except the size of it and my ADHD brain, <laughs> mm. you know, is like, no, we should not buy that. Okay, so your only familiarity is with whatever David Lynch did with the story and your thoughts on that. I know we talked about it in a past episode at some point, but uh, if you could kind of revisit and recapsulate your thoughts on the 84 film. It's unique for sure. It was a huge undertaking. Mm. They clearly had something massive, uh, a massive story with a lot of intricacies. And they were only able to make something for two hours or an hour and a half, however long it was. And that really showed, I thought. They did the best they could, but that really shows. Ah, so Jeff just checked it out. It's a two-hour, 20-minute yeah, it's, it's almost as long as this version. There isn't time for that film to take its time because they're rushing so hard to hit certain points in the story. Yeah, the, the entire story. Yeah, basically. I think they did what they could. I think Sting was unnecessary. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah, a little crazy for my liking, kind of like as if there was a character from Clockwork Orange that escaped and it was Sting. Into the future? into dune you know so that's that's how i interpret that Mm. but they did the best they could so i'm being nice yes you are there's a couple things in there that were kind of cool yeah and and that's all i can really say about that one okay so i will say that Dune. you know i'm I'm much more of a reader at least especially used to be much more of a reader trying to absorb as many of the classics and uh, highly revered stories as possible haven't as much as i'd like to i tried to read the novel dune because it, it came up on almost every list i ever researched and i just, i couldn't get into it i do have a hard time with sci-fi and fantasy fiction but i mean novel fiction by the way not not movies because 
when it's written out on the page, like every little thing, every little detail of that world has to be described. And I have a really hard time with working my way through that and tracking characters and tracking character names, who's who and what the relationships are. If I were to try to read, oh, I can't remember what the official title of it is, but one of the books is called uh, Game of Thrones. If I were to try to read that, fantasy series that would have been a nightmare for me had i never watched the tv show because i would be like okay who's who and what what i mean that show even the show in that case was hard at first to figure out the relationships between everyone well and after watching this version of dune danny villano's version i realized i made an assumption that the books are probably somewhat like game of thrones just a few less houses, I, I assume. <laughs> yeah, it's a it's a fair comparison. I, I know one was printed way published way 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 before another, but it is a good comparison to illustrate like the challenge I had of getting into it. So I didn't get into it and never finished the book, but that sort of thing, that sort of that level of world building, has always been easier for me in terms of filmmaking because the world is visual largely, and it just needs some exposition to understand how the world works or how the characters work with in relation to each other. That said, the 1984 Dune film I may have watched for the first time with you because it had yeah. such a rancid reputation that I stayed away from it. And watching it with you, you liked that movie way more than me. I almost completely checked out after a certain point because <laughs> there's so many things about it that were just ridiculous in its execution. Here's the yes, thing about the, the execution movie. is completely bizarre. Yes, I, I could feel that for its time. It, this was trying, this was a big swing towards a huge sci-fi epic. Um, but yes... It is trying to compact a lot into a reasonable, quote-unquote, amount of time for the movie-going experience, right? Because you can't have a sprawling thing, especially in the early 80s. But, yeah, the execution is just absolutely bonkers. There are things in this movie that we can talk about that, you know, while my memory is fuzzy, a, a little fuzzy about the 1984 movie, there's some things that repeat obviously in this film that I felt like, Oh, okay. It's, it's that thing that I saw in the 84 movie, but done way better and way more effectively. Yeah. I mean, I know that we didn't set this up to be a contrast and compare, right? But it just shows how you have to have the right director for a particular kind of material. Yeah. You know, David Lynch, I think is amazing when it's original content it's his own. I think that Denny Villeneuve... More grounded. Something yeah. more grounded. Yeah. And I think Denny Villeneuve is very good at taking really a franchise. Something that, you know, has an existing history. He can do original stuff for sure. But think about Arrival was the short story. Yeah, I and, guess. And yeah. uh, Blade Runner. Blade Runner had already existed, and then he came and did Blade Runner 2049. So he definitely goes in with respect of the content and figures out how he can execute it a little better, a little more succinctly. 
Yeah, so let's segue then. Uh, we're starting to get into it. What was good about Dune for you? The cinematography, the lighting, the color palette choices to help move the story along were outstanding. I mean, I just want to watch this over and over and over again. The, the world building was beautiful. The ideas of how people would exist in certain environments was very stimulating for me because I come from South Africa. I'm, you know, a place where droughts are common and I'd been in a drought for two years and then I came and moved to Washington where it rains at a particular time of the year. And the way people live in one environment to another is completely different. And here we go. Like the execution of that was just brilliant. I I loved the performances. I loved the casting. I thought it was great. I just want to pop in real quick. Note of clarity. The cinematographer of this film is Greg Frazier, who I'm not familiar with. But he is also the cinematographer of such films as uh, Vice and Zero Dark Thirty, Rogue One, and even some episodes of The Mandalorian and apparently the upcoming Batman movie, which we'll probably review at the beginning of the year. Well, that's very exciting because I'm definitely a fan of their work now. Anything else you thought was good about this version of Dune? Everything made sense. In this version of Dune, I actually had no idea. (laughs) I don't know why, but I guess I had no idea that we were following different families in the original. But the things were so much clearer in this version of the film. So I was just reminded there was a sci-fi channel miniseries adapting this story that I saw many years ago, at least 10 years ago, I saw it. I completely forgot about it. And I remember thinking, and maybe I had seen Lynch's before, because I kind of felt like I had this point of comparison at the time. And I remember thinking, okay, the effects of the miniseries are definitely subpar because they definitely felt like they had a, a certain a limited budget. So a lot of the effects mm. did not hold up, mm-hmm. but I felt like the storytelling was better because it's also like twice as long. Literally it was four and a half hours long. Wow. It was able to tell the story better and more clearly than the David Lynch movie. So I thought I'd just point that out there because I completely forgot about that miniseries. And, and that one starred William Hurt and uh, Ian McNeese and not very many well-known actors uh, uh, beyond that. Giancarlo Giannini. But anyway, for me, this movie practically lived up to the expectations I yeah. had of it. I didn't... <sighs> Was it an overwhelming, uh, mind-blowing experience? No, but boy, oh boy, was I into it after a certain point. I think we have seen over the past hundred years, many auteur directors, visionary directors, directors with a distinct voice or something to say, who go through and have a solid streak 
for mm. a number of years. Mm-hmm. You know, Sidney Lumet is one. Steven Spielberg is one. If if you don't count the if you don't want to count the seventies streak he had, then you certainly can count most of the eighties he had. Francis Ford Coppola had one. There's so many. Martin Scorsese had a streak, and Denis Villeneuve is definitely experiencing his. I haven't seen all of his movies. I think there's like two or three early films of his. Mm. I still have to catch up with Polytechnique being one of them. But everything since Incendies has just been like a constant progression where like even from there you had a very confident and interesting uh, storyteller and he's just got better and better and more interesting since. You know, it's like the more budget he gets, the bigger he's able to to go with it. Right. Mm -hmm. But he doesn't. He's not someone who's like, oh, well, his earlier stuff was really great when he had a little limited budget, but now people need to rein him in. He just seems to get better and is able to use that money smartly in a very highbrow, refined way where he's able to elevate any material that he is working with. So hats off to Denis Villeneuve in general. Yeah, he definitely seems to put together good teams as well of people. Mm. And, you know, that's important as well in creating the final product, right? Yeah, of course. It is a collaborative effort for sure. Let's talk about that. The cast. I think, yes, it is an impressive list of names in this cast. But some of the highlights without going into details. First and foremost, Timothy Chalamet. Now, this guy... Was a little worried about that one. Were you? Yeah. Okay, now this guy has been kind of on the rise during most of the past decade. And he's usually done, like, more quieter dramas or uh, even uh, dramedies like Lady Bird. Uh, Call Me By Your Name, which is a movie you didn't see, but definitely a highlight people point to when it comes to Chalamet's career. The guy's got acting chops, and he's very impressive. I think he's in his early to mid-20s. And he's done a very impressive job with his career already. The dude is excellent in this film. I was 100% with him. He really made me care about this character who, you know, ostensibly is just a privileged white kid, right? Yeah, I guess there's a line where he's like, oh, I should get fully dressed. You know, right, like right. He doesn't even have to get fully dressed. Right, right. Or properly, of, you know, proper attire for proper situations. Right. But, he, he, you know, this is a story basically of a privileged uh, white kid who has the rug pulled out of him, loses everything, but also is considered as a possible, like, the one, right? The gifted one, whatever it is, that, that trope we've seen so many times. You know, in Star Wars, The Matrix, whatever it is. Ostensibly, that's what he is. But my gosh, I am totally with him the entire way and care about what happens to him and care about how he responds to every situation. He is really great in this film. Another highlight, Jason Momoa. I know the dude is more or less often playing variations on the same character, which is basically a really big badass. <laughs> but he's also a lovable big badass. And I'm yeah. my I, I can't help but smile 
whenever he shows up on screen. Yeah, it's they've got so Paul and Jason Momoa's character have this really lovely relationship where every time they see each other, they're happy to see each other. Like, I don't know how old Paul is supposed to be, but he runs to Duncan. Mm-hmm. every time he sees him it doesn't matter what he's wearing or what yeah. the situation or ceremony is yeah we're plopped into the middle of that relationship that relationship is clearly established they have a history together and it never feels like i never feel outside of that I, it was yeah. executed well enough where i'm like okay i get it i get this relationship um i care about this dude so he was a highlight for me. Any any cast members that were highlights for you in particular? I know this is weird, but I loved seeing Stellan Skarsgård as who he was. The Baron, I thought, yeah. I thought that was great. I thought the look of him, the design, the the way he's eating some some sort of meat mm-hmm. at a table at a particular scene. Mm-hmm. It was just really fascinating how he executed the character. We hardly see him. You know, there's maybe six small scenes that mm. we see him. And so he's got very limited time on screen and he does it really well. Oh, he definitely makes an impression. I was wondering if you recognized who he was. Oh, I know actually. who this man is, <laughs> you know, and I know a couple of his children. You've never seen him look the way he looks in this film. No, there's definitely some sort of makeup suit going on. Oh, yeah. Prosthetics. A for number sure. of things. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I loved seeing Javier Bardem. Again, he only had a little bit of time on screen, but it yeah. was it was great. And then, oh, my God, that was Charlotte Rampling as. Yes. Reverend, as Reverend Mother. Mother. Yes. That was perfect casting choice that's the thing with this movie it, it was it's all perfect and then who plays drax again who is that oh dave batista dave yeah. batista so seeing dave but <laughs> you may it sound like drax shows up in this movie <laughs> yeah. well well he kind of does because he's kind of in the same he's in the same boat as jason momoa right he's kind of getting cast as a a sort of similar i i hear what you're saying but in this one he's He's a bad dude. Let's he put does it that seem way. to embody something different. Yeah. Which is nice. It's nice that he's expanding his repertoire a little <laughs> bit. I don't know what the right word is, but that was nice. And then... Like, he's absolutely unlikable in this movie. Oh, yeah. And they do that not only with his own acting, but they the team is there, right? So the makeup, the special yes. effects, they're a, there helping move that story he, along. He looked like Baby Dave. In a way, like the way his makeup is, because he doesn't have any five o'clock shadow. He doesn't have any hair or anything yeah. that we've seen him look like well, in the I, past. I, I don't. I, it it feels like this is, you know, they're very much about the shave the entire hair, don't let there be any hair at all. Yeah. Kind of situation, and then somehow really, really dark eyes. Yes, um, yes, that's true. That that's was true. interesting. It contrasts quite well with. Gosh, I can't remember the group of people, the sand, the people who live in the sand. Um, the free, the free, freeman. Yes. I don't know if something I'm saying like it right. It's not free man. It's like freeman or something. Something. Yes. Yeah, 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 yeah. But you, we know what you're talking about. You know what I'm talking about. It's a nice contrast to their blue eyes, their crystal blue eyes, which, by the way, I thought was done better than I have seen in other adaptations. I think other adaptations if I recall correctly, tried just like 
somehow highlighting the irises mm. in blue, whereas this one, and, you know, they had certain limitations. This one was like, fuck it, we're just going to color correct your eyeball, your entire That's eyeball. That's what I was blue. thinking the whole time, yeah. was I was thinking, as a photographer, I was like, we're just going to white balance the shit out of it, guys. Okay, That's going to be how we solve this problem. Yeah. You know? Okay, so the cast, uh, I think, is, is a strength yeah, of it. Yeah, the cast is I great. Think I agree with you. The cinematography is stunning, as as always. A different cinematographer, like I, I mentioned before. Mm. For but now that you mentioned that he also did Rogue One, I can see that now. Okay, cool. Um, I have to rewatch that movie. I've, I haven't seen that movie nearly enough. The score. Now, I think we differ mm, a little bit. Let's talk about the score. Why yeah. don't you go first? I mean, it is a focus on this episode, mm. so we have to talk about the, the score. The score. The score. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just, okay. The, the score is by Hans Zimmer, mm-hmm. who is, you know, sometimes a little mm-hmm. overrated. The guy's been around for 40 years, okay? The guy's got a huge body of work. No disrespect to him. He is up there, actually, with John Williams. But some people, they get a little too faithful, let's say, to the to the Zim. They have Zimonites. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there have been movies in recent history where I have felt that Zimmer's work is a problem for the film and hurts the film. Mm-hmm. There has also been the opposite where Zimmer's work is iconic and a huge benefit to a film, you know, like Lion King, like Inception and, and Dark Knight or whatever. Batman Begins. Yeah, yeah, the entire trilogy there. I actually, at first I was like, mm, it's all right. It's kind of blending in in the background. It's nothing too bombastic or recognizable. And I actually thought the score got better and better and more enjoyable as the film went on to where we're in the last scene of the film and even like other scenes too. I'm like into it. I It's not one of my top three Hans Zimmer scores per se, but it is one of my uh, favorites outside of that for sure. Well, good for you. That's nice. <laughs> okay. Maybe that's a good segue into the bad. What didn't sure. work for us about this version of Doom? Mm. Mm. Oh, boy. I just... Go on. I'm 50-50 with Hans Summer. Maybe even 60-40. I love his work most of the time. Mm-hmm. This was at times jarring for me. This at times was overpowering and unnecessarily loud. (laughs) It didn't need to be as dramatic as it was at certain points. Hmm. And that threw me out of the score when all I wanted to do was embrace it. Hmm. And it's like you said, like as it grew on you, you were fine. In the beginning of the film, it was unnecessarily loud. Oh, We're just introducing the characters, guys. We don't have to get crazy. That's interesting. I didn't feel that way at all in the first act. And then at the very end, I was like, we got it. It's the credits. Everyone worked really hard. They knocked it out of the ballpark. Let's just take it down a notch, okay? And, you know, in the middle, it was was fine. Hmm. But... 
this was no Inception. It was no Batman Begins. Uh-huh. I have to maybe listen to the score separately and see how I feel mm. and maybe watch the film again on something that doesn't have a sound system because maybe that was just out of whack, but it really felt at times overpowering and unnecessarily dramatic. Yeah, I, I think that's just a point that we disagree on because I think that it it, it complemented well with the epicness that we're seeing on screen and and i mean this is this thing is big it's it's what a lot of people go to the movies to see and it's i would imagine this is our lawrence of arabia what wow for me that's what it's like because it's this massive scape yeah one world gets introduced where they live it's kind of a scottish type isle irish isle feel very aquatic and stuff yeah very ocean driven moss blah blah but then we go to a completely different landscape and i get that it needs to have this contrasting thing Mm -hmm. well i will say one interesting thing that they did with the music is when they arrived on dune when the family and the on a ruckus yes when they arrived on a ruckus Yes, with the bagpipes. With the bagpipes. One person is playing the bagpipes to lead the, you know, the the family. And then surrounding bagpipes start playing too, joining in. And I thought that that was so lovely. Yes, I ultimately agree with you. However, that lone, there's something about bagpipes where like a lone bagpipe is very uh, jarring and upsetting. But a group oh, of upset too. But a group of bagpipes yeah. can really work together. Yeah. Yeah. No, we just disagree with that point. I, was there anything else that you thought was bad about, the, or any flaws or weaknesses you had in it? Couldn't. Didn't have any visceral reaction to anything else. Was just the score. Negative reaction. Yeah. Saying, negative okay. visceral reaction. Uh huh. I think I was really happy with everything else. Yeah. What about you? Well, here, here's the thing. We just saw the movie a few hours ago, and I definitely feel like it, it's a film that benefits from rewatches. Yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, there, there's a lot of, lot of things that I thought were good about the movie I didn't even express yet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, one of them being that this film does not hold your hand it you know like the david lynch version literally had someone on screen going this is the world <laughs> this is what the the houses are and all that sort of stuff like literally it was like an exposition dump right this movie does not do that and it trusts yeah. you to kind of go along with right and you may not hear fully or understand all of the dialogue yeah that was a little hard at some points and but i was okay with it some people I could see some people having an issue with that, but I think that's just the reason why a movie, the movie would benefit from another viewing for me. It's not something that I felt was a flaw or a weakness in the film. I was just going with it. Okay. I didn't fully understand what that person said, but I'm just going to trust the movie and go with it and see if I get it a a few moments later Mm. or whatever. And Sometimes that was the case, but ultimately I kind of felt like, yeah, I, I, I would like to see this movie again, if no other reason but to understand what exactly is Rebecca Ferguson saying when she's freaking out or whatever it is, you know. 
Or even Timothy Chalamet. He has a freak out moment too. I mean, there's definitely nothing that stands out as I'm watching the movie as a problem. Mm -hmm. Do I think it's a perfect film? I think that this movie is one of the best things we've seen this year. Yeah, I I think it is definitely going to make my favorites. And I feel like this is just a part. So, well, yeah, I, I feel like we have to wait to be able to call it one of the best trilogies or well, yeah, whatever. yeah. But as this first film on its own, it's a great start of of this year. Even like favorites aside, I think. Well, it does make me want to rewatch some of the movies that came out at the beginning of the year. Can, can you believe Nomadland came out this year? But anyway, do you think the good outweighs the bad? In Absolutely. June? I would give this a nine. We're on the same page. So it loses a whole point for you just because, because of the of, score. So not, not two <laughs> points, but just one point because of the score. Okay. Yeah, I, I I rarely ever give a film a 10 out of 10. So that's why I'm hedging towards a 9, mm. just, to, just in case. Yeah, I've only seen the movie once. And again, I do think I want to see it a second time to capture everything. And, you know, maybe there's things that will stand out to me upon a second viewing or issues I might have or whatever. But just as a, as a first-time experience absorbing this thing on the biggest screen i can in my area as close as possible without craning or getting a kink in my neck yeah this is a nine out of ten for me there's there's anybody who says otherwise is absolutely in my mind just plain crazy and they're either really spoiled with their expectations of movies or they just have no perspective of what a bad movie is. I just do not understand how anyone could possibly, and there's really not many, but how anyone could possibly, with any credibility, say, don't go see this movie. This is not that good, or whatever. So who knows if the HBO Max thing really kind of pulled the rug out from under this. But yeah, dude, don't watch this on your 40 or 50 or 60 inch TV. Go, go out, see this thing. It's worth it. You'll be fine. Again, we're not doctors. Don't take medical advice from us, but I highly recommend if you're able to go see this thing in the theaters. Sounds like for the most part, you agree. This is definitely a choice you have to make for yourself. Fair enough. All right. Things to talk about in spoilers. Sure. Okay. So... From here on out, if you've seen the film, come join us. We're going to talk about spoilers and final thoughts for the film. Otherwise, look at the timestamp, skip ahead to the next segment. You're going to really enjoy it. We'll talk about our favorite movie scores. It'll be a great discussion. But for right now, we're going to talk spoilers for Denis Villeneuve's Dune. Okay, Shanna, what are some things that you wanted to talk more freely about about the film i love the execution of the is it a religion the mother reverend is that a religion or is are they from another planet <laughs> like what is that it seems to have control in a lot of places okay. so maybe it is a religion so my short answer is i don't know but 
my sense is you could make a parallel to like the Catholic Church or whatever, where there is a religious figure who will meet with leaders, major leaders, and advise them or work with them or what have you. But there is definitely this belief, this idea that she is a part of. Well, what I loved about it is, to me, they are definitely some sort of witches. They're not Catholic by any means. I know you're saying Catholic system. This is clearly a different culture slash religion where women have the power, women have the knowledge, and it's kind of kept to women because there's a line later that's talked about where Mother Reverend says you taught him our ways and he's a man and his powers aren't developed as fast as ours. And it was just very interesting what she had to say about that. So it made it this exclusive thing for women. Okay. So that's a really good point because she also chastises Rebecca Ferguson's character for not having a girl. Well, I don't think she wanted Rebecca Ferguson's character to be the one that would create the messiah lady jessica uh, you know i am sure there is a lot of meat on here from a religious standpoint that you could dissect you know and, mm. and maybe because lady jessica I, I didn't even realize this until oscar isaac literally calls it out lady jessica and and the duke are not married they're not husband and wife. No, she's a concubine. Yeah, apparently, even though she is the Duke's son's mom. And they're almost, it feels like they're treated as a family unit. It's very fascinating. But you could, what I'm getting at is you could probably, if you really wanted to dig into it, you could probably make a Mary Magdalene kind of parallel here or, or something along those lines and see some sort of like religious parallels throughout the story and i think you're 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 kind of touching on it and just kind of skimming the surface here by calling out in particular this what was her name reverend mother yeah yeah it's very interesting no it's not obviously catholicism but it is it is something that has that kind of influence and it's interesting i don't know anything about mary magdalene other than a manger um and birthing jesus so i don't know how i could contrast and compare those things but how i view it is definitely from a perspective of family units being a little different and how relationships between the man and woman can still be respectful even if it isn't a marriage so mm. that was because there's a very tender moment that happens where he just wants to sleep in he wants to fall asleep on her yep that moment is like i wouldn't think that that would be in there but it's mm. it's such a sweet way to show that there is love in that relationship and there's a moment where he realizes he doesn't have not necessarily control he realizes that he can't protect his son anymore because of the level of development he's hit and well, the, the situation as well. The influence that she has on him too. Yeah. And he looks at her and says, promise me you'll protect him. And it's his way of not only letting go, 
but also this is really important to me i just want you to know that i'm going to trust you to deal with this yeah 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 and it's this beautiful respect yeah i will say that that entire unit that entire family unit was very well developed before shit went down and i cared about what happened to that unit when shit was going down that when by which i mean that the baron and his army invades arrakis to take arrakis away and blow up the entire city that they live uh, away from the duke and his family Um, as commanded by the emperor oh okay okay yeah so it's basically this assassination yeah anything else you wanted to talk about at this point there's a lot of body language and movement in this film from different characters that are signs of respect, understanding, and I just thought that that was really interesting. Like Paul, when he has to battle with Jameis, I believe, mm. he does this thing where he brings the weapon to his forehead, and yes. Jason Momoa had done it as well. Yes. And I thought that that was lovely. And then there's the meeting between Javier Bardem and Oscar Isaac and, you know. Yeah, the Duke. Basically, everyone is there. Yeah. And there's this great moment where Javier Bardem spits and like everyone gets upset except Jason Momoa, who has obviously spent some time with them. Yes. And he said, oh, thank you. Thank you so much for your for this and yes. this hydration and well, then everybody yeah. takes a turn and it was this this moment that could have been absolutely disastrous yeah 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 but was pivoted so i like that so you remind me of a few things i just want to call out that i thought was executed very well you mentioned body language i don't remember this in the david lynch Mm-mm. version <laughs> but there's sign language in this and yeah. it is like always done like subtly, like to the side, trying to make it so people aren't aware of it and only like key people are aware of the messages. And I thought that was really cool. Basically, like Rebecca Ferguson's character in particular has like at least three different languages she communicates, if I understand correctly. Yeah, I think I picked up on that too. And that is fascinating and really cool. And not only is the sign language aspect really cool, but something that I thought was absolutely fucking ridiculous in in the adaptation by David Lynch, there was like this like psychic talk or whatever oh yeah i absolutely thought was so poorly executed in the uh, 84 original this one they they do it so much better it's and 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 helped me understand what it's supposed to be which is basically a way to control others and tell and make them do what you want them to do but you can also very easily get it wrong Via a, via a change in vocal cords. Something that kind of reminds me of Motherland of Salem. What is that one called again? I haven't seen it, but I, I, I kind of know what yeah, you're they, talking about. Those witches rely on their vocal cords. And so with this, it's really interesting 
because if you look a little into witches of the past and current witches, there are a lot of stories that talk about the power of voice and casting through voice work. And that was very interesting and even more interesting that she was, you know, this is obviously something that belonged to the woman. And it was interesting that she had trained her son. So that was lovely. Uh, yes, yes, definitely. Also, the training, well, it's not just in training, but there's in, this entire, like, personal shield, like, tech, oh, yeah. that was laughably bad in previous versions. But here, it was it was done so well. Maybe you could argue it's a little unclear exactly how and what things are able to break through that and why certain things are not able to. They tried doing it very casually in passing, explaining how it works during Paul's uh, training scene mm-hmm. with Josh Brolin. Yeah. But once they did, once they It was a up, particular blade or something. Yeah, once it was turned on, it was like, okay, this is this is way better and i'm on board for this Uh, i thought that was very cool and very well done and it was just executed well enough so that if something did pierce or was about to pierce through for a character you cared about there was a certain degree of suspense Mm -hmm. with it right Mm -hmm. so i really liked that i thought that was really cool it's a nice addition to suspense creation and even the baron has his own so that he can protect himself in case someone's trying to like surprise attack him or whatever i don't know that we necessarily see everyone be fully fleshed out in this film yet that's the sort of thing i'm patient with because i understand this is not the entire story and and sometimes it takes time to be able to bring different layers to all the different characters in a story of the scope and size okay so you wanted to talk you wanted to kind of forecast a little bit here and look forward to what the other chapters might bring well this film just ended so nicely you know, it yes. ended in a very neat packaged, neatly packaged. This is the end of chapter one. Yes. Kind of. Yeah. Let's kind of conclusion. That. And I, I loved it. I was very excited. I was like, this is a great way to end because not only did we start in this blue wetland uh, and then in the middle, we came to this desert Camelot kind of, I don't know, there's probably a better word for it, you know, village, city covered by walls to protect them from stuff. Mm-hmm. But then we end in the freer part of this, of Arrakis. And yes. it's completely different lighting mm-hmm. and different vibe, different energy, totally different everything. And I remember in the original, when they got to the Freemans, it was all underground and it was pretty shadowy and and blue and this made more sense to me and how it ended with having to duel and winning that and being accepted into the community it Mm -hmm. was it was just awesome and then Zendaya you know kind of moving away with flair behind her was just fantastic yeah uh I, I will say that the as soon as Zendaya looks back at us and says, this is just the beginning. I was like, oh, this is the end of this movie. <laughs> but I don't 
Like, I want to keep going. Yeah. You know, I really want to keep going. So hopefully we'll get that opportunity. I really hope that that happens because it would just be so gut-wrenching and heartbreaking if this was the fate of Dune. Yeah. And then we have to wait another 40 years for someone else to tackle it. I mean, this could be one of the defining epics of this decade. So I think that that's a good way to end it. And uh, we are running long, so we should finish up here. So those are our thoughts on Dune. What do you think of the movie? Feel free to email us at review at gmail.com. And now it's time for Film Faves. Film Faves is the part of the podcast wherein we count down our 12 favorite movies around a particular topic. We do this partially to give you a sense of our taste in movies, but also hopefully expose you to things that you haven't seen before. This episode's a slightly different because rather than exposing you to films and telling you where you can hopefully find those films on subscription services, uh, we're focusing on movie scores. Now, there are some exceptions, but largely you can find a lot of these film scores on such music services as Spotify. And and what's the music service you listen to? So my source for exploring for this episode was through Amazon Music, a subscription. Mm-hmm. When you get the subscription, then you're, you get their whole library, which isn't always everything that yeah. you want, but yeah, that's I what found, you get. Yeah, and I found sometimes Spotify is a little more thorough uh, than Amazon Music is, but same idea, basically. So with that, let's talk about movie scores. I think this was almost as challenging a task as our favorite movies of all time list. For me, this was this is such an important list to me because I'm I don't really do normal music that much. I'm not as passionate about it. By normal, I mean like pop or rock or whatever. I, but if you play a movie score, I'm there as long as it's not Lord of the Rings because that got overdone for me. So this was as important as a list as best female directors or triple F rated films, and then obviously our bests. Yeah, so this was very brutal process because I ended up writing out, oh, God, 70 or so movie scores that I love or really, really like from somewhere over like 30 to 40 different composers or something. Hmm. And I had to pare that down to 12. So there's different, a couple different ways I went about doing that. First was to write out the different composers and write out oh, with that scores that I like most or love by each composer. And then help, that helped me try to figure out, okay, well, what are my absolute favorites from those? what might be my favorite score by this particular composer. And that helped me to whittle it down to 22 movie or uh, uh, scores, I should say. And then there was a matter of cutting 10 more scores down, which was a very difficult process, a very painful process. The, the, the quote unquote first four, the 12 through eight, they're the ones that barely got on or whatever. And there's like probably four to eight other scores that 
uh, are literally just outside that list, you know, it hurts me to not have them on the list kind of thing. Mm. I don't know. Did you have a similar experience in terms of trying to whittle down? Um, you you went you started with a similar, if not larger pool of scores because there's some that you consider that I didn't. You know, even right now, I'm looking at my list. and I'm like, I don't know. I don't know if I'm I'm 100% happy with this. Mm. It's it's very difficult because for me, what I'm looking for in movie scores is like how am I connecting with it? Is it music that's making me straight up relive the movie where if I hear something, hear a particular piece, I I know like okay, in Fern Gully, I know exactly which part of dialogue is being said right now. I know exactly what characters doing what right now in that piece of music Mm -hmm. or is it making me relive a memory from the past such as land before time if i listen to that i can remember not only watching the film for the first time i think i was maybe five or six years old but i can remember which house i was in what part of the house i was in and what kind of light was coming through the window it's that vivid for me are we spoiling Mm. your list here Maybe, maybe not. And, you know, (laughs) or does it inspire me to want to watch the movie immediately? So that's really the factors I had to think of. So there was a lot of pressure. But also something else that I guess I, I didn't quite express is I have a great love for these movie composers. And... I didn't want this to become an Alan Silvestri list or a Michael Giacchino or a John Williams list. So at one point I thought, well, let me just pick one from each of those. And then I realized, well, then it's not my 12 ultimate favorites, is it? Right. So I had to re-strategize again. And hopefully I'm happy, you know, I'm okay with it. And if it doesn't change much in the next few years, then it doesn't change much. But these are basically scores that I want to listen to a lot of the time. Excellent point you just made. Reminded me. I had to completely remove John Williams from consideration for my list because if I were to include his work, at least half of my list would be by John Williams. Well, and I mean, he's just done so much, and I thought I was going to be clever by just having one, but then I looked at all his stuff, and I forgot that he did Hook, and I forgot that he did... Basically Spielberg movies, like yeah, basically you know you ba- you basically have to table most of Spielberg's filmography too mm-hmm. by by extension. So that was a big part of it. Is like okay, like for some people it's Hans Zimmer. For me, it's John Williams. I just had to table him. Be like okay, aside from that composer, and maybe in the future next year or whatever, we'll do a John Williams uh, film faves list, but. For now, this is like, okay, John Williams aside, these are my favorite scores as best as I can. And we'll talk about afterwards what didn't quite make our list. Uh, that was that was just <laughs> Stick around. T- too painful, yeah. you know, to, to take off. So is there anything else you want to say about the process before we get into your number 12? I, I really loved working on it. Mm. One of the best ways to get me out of bed and get going with the day is when, and you want to do it and I'm dragging my feet, is you'll put movie score playlists on. And then I love straining my ear to try and hear what it is and figure it out. 
And sometimes I get it immediately and, and sometimes it just takes a little bit. And I am the person that's going to headbang to like Star Trek Into Darkness and is going to do funky little moves to, you know, something like Ghostbusters. So it's been fun. Yes. So I have a scores playlist and I have a movie theme playlist where, and, and that was something that I was a factor to for me is, okay, is it just the theme that I love or do I actually enjoy a lot of the score outside of the theme as well. So that was, that was a process too. So with that, let's, uh, let's dive right on in. What is your 12th favorite movie score? My number 12 is one that I recognize every time and has been used in several, you know, not just what he made the, the music for, but has been used in Quentin Tarantino and other pop culture references as well. It is, the Good, the Bad, and the Ugly by Ennio Morcroni. Wow, very cool. And it's probably there because of Inglorious Bastards, because oh. he incorporates some of that in there. Huh. And when I heard that, I was like, oh, that's really freaking cool. So. <laughs> That's an excellent pick and, an, and a, a very good example of it, not just being the theme, but like there's another piece as well. I can't remember mm-hmm. the name of it right now. It's on my film score playlist, but there is another piece in that that is just like absolutely epic and awesome. And just all the elements that came from his head that are included to make that score what it is, is just awesome. His work is so beautiful. Oh, and that's another thing I was going to say. I'm going to try when possible occasionally to put in some samples of some of the scores that we're speaking to here. Uh, you have it right here. So I, I think the other one was Ecstasy of Gold. Ecstasy of Gold, mm. as well as The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, from the score to The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, are both really awesome. And he does the untouchables too. So for me, this was like where I had to be. Well, do I like this one or do I like that one better? Such a hard choice. Absolutely. My 12th favorite is by James Horner. Very hard to decide what's going to fill this slot because there's at least four scores that could have fit this slot. But if I were to go by the metric of, okay, more than just the theme, Mm. maybe... This was one of a couple <laughs> that could fit this slot. It is an American tale. Oh, for heaven's sakes, are you going to make me cry? Well, Every maybe, time maybe. you bring up this movie, I want to cry. Maybe. <laughs> so we talked about this in our last episode where we talked about opening title sequences. And what was one of the common elements that helps make a, an opening title sequence great? It is a great music choice. Often, score. 
And that is absolutely the case with American Tale, with its very simple, single violin, with a backing kind of magical shimmer, complementing this imagery of snow flurry Mm. in their opening title sequence. other elements throughout the the film there's the the climactic what is it called the the great mouse oh i can't remember what it's called giant mouse contraption that is created there's the cat the cossack cats piece there's so much that i just absolutely love from this film's uh score and so it's it's it made it to my twelfth uh, spot, twelfth favorite, James Horner's An American Tale. Oh yeah, release the secret weapon. That is one of them. Thank <laughs> you for bringing that up. And then the Great Fire, all all that sort of stuff. Go ahead. What is your eleventh favorite? My number eleven is also James Horner, actually, and it's The Land Before Time, and it's the very first piece that gets played. Mm. James Horner is just lovely and sentimental and sweet, but also kind of brings each character. I know each character has their own little piece of score, Mm. but I don't know. James Horner just does it in a way that if, like if you start playing the land before time for me, that's the one where I can visualize everything. But I can also, I also know when we see the mother and I know when the raptor, I think it's a raptor is stealing the egg it's just it's so sweet how this song goes from a lovely introduction into where we are in time to this is also about family and community Mm. and what you come up against in a community and one that you instantly recognize before it's ever even doing anything yes okay so moving right along my 11th favorite is by Bernard Herrmann. My favorite Bernard Herrmann score made this list. It is Psycho, which is an iconic score. So there's there's two elements typically that people think of when they think of the score. First of all, there is the shower scene piece, the re, 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 that sort of thing. But there's also the opening title sequence or the theme of the movie, which, you know, this is a very string heavy and it's very like a high pitch sort of string heavy score. But it has that dun, 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 dun kind of mm. staccato mm-hmm. sort of sound to it that is just like instantly recognizable and an iconic. And 
You know, I think it came down to either this or Vertigo, mostly when it came to Bernard Herrmann. Yeah. And I just, I, I couldn't deny the iconography of the the iconic status of Psycho's score. So it's my 11th favorite movie score. My number 10 is a foreign film. It is composed by Jan Tiersen. And it is Amelie. The whole album is beautiful and to me kind of other world, other culturally because it's very, it seems very French or it seems like the idea of what France might be like if I were to go there. I know that my mom got to go to Paris when I was maybe 13, 12, I don't know. And she just loved it there. And when she was, she's never going to watch a foreign film with me, but when she heard me play the album, she just adored it. Mm. And, you know, I'll listen to the fourth track over and over on repeat and I'll be perfectly happy. Excellent. And that was the score to Amelie by who again? Jan Tiersen. Excellent. So my 10th favorite movie score is one that goes back to the golden age of Hollywood. It might be the only one on my list that goes to the golden age of Hollywood. And... It is by Charlie Chaplin. I had about four different Chaplin scores to choose from that I either really like or really love. And I actually landed on one of his sound pictures, which is 1952's Limelight. Mm. For those who don't know, Charles Chaplin did actually create a lot of his own scores to his own movies. And I've always thought the work from limelight in particular is very beautiful it's chaplin trying to be moving and i always find it quite complimentary to the film and as very moving uh music and sometimes very big like calvero is it is it the intro or calvero's death one of them is like da 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 <laughs> yeah. it's know? funny cuz when you when you said that i was like it's probably that one he's talking about right but also is it Claire's Clara's theme something like that the female character's theme sort of thing it's just absolutely beautiful so i i really love and i really could not leave off charlie chaplin's limelight from this list it's my 10th favorite movie score wonderful my number nine is thomas newman with finding nemo really there is and this is my first one where i will listen to more than one track over and over again Mm. i think it's the egg scene and then another one and they're very short pieces but they're just so sweet and whimsical and calming you know i i absolutely love being in the water and this score just it makes me feel like i'm there with the clownfish lovely my ninth favorite score is one of the only scores that can make me cry when i focus on it 
To an extent, American Tail is mm. that as well, but for a very different reason. This one is Avengers Endgame by Alan Silvestri, who's one of my favorite composers. First of all, there's the Avengers theme, right? Which he established in, with 2012's Avengers. Yeah. Great. Definitely repeats in uh, Avengers Endgame score, but with Endgame, there's also the piece called Portals, which comes at a very pivotal scene in the movie, a scene that always makes me cry because (laughs) with joy, tears of joy, Yeah, you know, just absolutely. And I guess relief. (laughs) overwhelmed (laughs) completely overwhelmed and when i hear that piece on its own even it's exactly what you're talking about where i'm visualizing what's happening on screen while i'm listening to it and it it's still i still get that twinge that 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 move to tears almost while listening to that sometimes not almost sometimes i am moved to tears while listening to it as well Silvestri, love him. Avengers Endgame score is my ninth favorite score. Wonderful. My number eight, it was it was difficult, <laughs> as I said, not to make this a Michael Giacchino list. Oh. But this is one of my two Michael Giacchinos. It is up. Mm. And I almost feel like, you know, it's a bigger problem than the John Williams problem. I kind of put them on the same page. I have a lot of respect for both of them. There are so many of his things that I love, but, you know, I had to look at the whole album for this one. Mm. Like, do I love the whole thing? Do I feel like it's, you know, perfect? Does it communicate what it needs to during the film? And it's definitely... Uh, up I, I listened to it and then I felt like I need to watch those first 12 minutes those first gut-wrenching 12 minutes of the film again just to see how it plays with the scenes and it's so perfect it just it it takes us on the ride of life in as little as four minutes I think is one of the pieces and it's just gorgeous and there's thrilling parts 
And in this film, there's thrilling moments, but there's also hilarious thrilling moments where Carl is trying to grab Russell and the house who, he, who he's calling Ellie because he feels like that's how Ellie is with him. And they're trying to get away from Kevin the bird and Doug the dog. And it's got this very rushed sense to it. And they think he thinks that they've gotten away from them. And he sits down and the music stops. You know, Michael Giacchino knows when to do what and when to stop. And mm. it's just wonderful. Hmm. Yeah, Michael Giacchino, Gino, I never really know how to pronounce it. Definitely someone I considered. For me, uh, Up was one of them. Inside mm-hmm. Out, Star Trek from 2009 especially mm-hmm. might be my actual favorite of his. Super 8 was also in consideration, but uh, did not make my list, that composer. Well, and I thought it was very interesting because then I listened to some of his Lost the TV show stuff. And I could hear a little bit of that in up. And so what I drew from that was he's very good at invoking what the sound of family could be. Very cool. My eighth favorite, I'll tell you who did make my list is Philip glass. Philip glass made your list. He got knocked out of mine. Okay, that's kind of shocking because you love The <laughs> Hours. Yeah. I like The Hours a lot, but I love his work for the documentary The Fog of War, hmm. which, you know, some people feel like Philip Glass is is very repetitive. And yes, he is repetitive, but he has, he has a repetitive elements in his score, but not without something kind of move, creating a momentum to his score or something, some other element that comes in mm. on top of that, that repetitive element. And I don't know exactly what it is in the Fog of War piece that makes the See, that's exactly yeah. it. That's exactly it. Two elements. Uh, you have one constant, and then you have the, I don't know if it's flutes or clarinets that come in above. We're not as good at talking about music as we are movies, guys. Yeah, but. yeah. here's the thing. I don't know any music lingo. I just know <laughs> what I feel. Right, right. So there we go. So anyway, I don't know if which it is, but that comes in on top, right? And then like the yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I I absolutely have found that to be hypnotic while watching the film, but also like it helps really make the moments in the movies, the montages, whatever they are. The you know it's always or often underneath the words of Robert McNamara, captivating. Mm. It really helps make that film captivating. So I love Philip Glass's. The Fog of War score. My number seven is from Endgame, Alan Silvestri, Portals. This is... The entire score or (laughs) just the piece Portals? I haven't had a chance to listen to the entire score, but here's why I love it. This is a piece of music that makes me pumped. It makes me relive that moment, relive the memory of watching that with you the first time and the last time we watched it. You know, we had watched the people's reactions to the portal scene and it just chokes us up every time. And so we were like, no, damn it, we're going to watch this now. We know we have a lot of other things to watch. Sure, sure, sure. We're going to rewatch this. And 
it's this kind of song that I can listen to in the car and work out my aggression and fill up my patience tank to deal with traffic. And it's just such a wonderful, amazing, rising piece of music. And I have a, a huge a bigger appreciation for it now because what I realized was he did the Avengers theme and he must have had to think really good and hard about what kind of piece he wanted to make because that was going to get used for another what 20 films well no exactly it it would get sprinkled in here and there and he had to create something that was going to I guess for lack of a better word would stretch shrink complement everything else going on so I have a huge appreciation for him and how he worked that into portals you know, it's funny that you call out a particular piece because when we were planning this whole list, you were like, can we just do particular piece list? I'm like, fuck no. I was trying just, to see how I could split this list up. I was like, fuck no. That is way too minutiae. Like, is that it is, though, Jeff? It is absolutely ridiculous. Well, no, I'm not that hardcore. Okay, that, I am, okay, apparently. Clearly. Yeah. So anyway, it's like, no, this is whole scores. What are your favorites? Anyway, I, th- I just thought that was amusing. My seventh favorite is by a composer whose work I don't largely love. There's only like two of his that I really like, but one I really love. And his name is uh, Basil Polidorus. And the score in question is The Hunt <laughs> for Red October, which... Shanna does not like. <laughs> no, only because you play it like at one point you were playing it every time we went for a shower and it was just like, <laughs> oh my God, the Russians are coming. <laughs> it's like Because it's that, well, I'll let you carry on because you're probably going to talk about a specific piece. Some of that was intentional. Some of it was the damn thing on random okay. coming up. But Sure. You seem to embrace it every time it did. Oh, because I love it. I love it. Uh, this is this is a score that actually is a combination of choir with like brass and or symphonic orchestra, and it has that very like masculine um, Russian patriarchal men's choir sound to it.
Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, it's one of those where it's almost earwormy, where you hear it and you get it stuck in your head for the rest of your week, you know? And, and that's and that's why I couldn't <laughs> I can't hear it ever again because as soon as just you talking about it it's in my head. Yeah. So uh, could I leave it off this list ultimately if I love it that much? Uh, no, no, I could not. So yeah, it's my seventh favorite score. My number six is Star Trek Into Darkness. Yes, the second one with Michael Giacchino. But why? Okay, so I yeah, don't know. Not okay. the first one. But why in particular? There's something into more. I think what what Michael Giacchino is good at is he takes existing stuff and he respects it enough to have it, but then he adds his own little layers to it. And I don't know how you would describe that, but he gives his own spice to it. And this is definitely. I'm sorry. Our dog is very tired and in a bit of pain. She hurt her leg, but we're gonna get back onto this. She's in your lap. Yeah. I, this is one of those pieces of music that I visualize my future with. So I'm driving in this, uh, driving in the car, and I hear the do 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 and do 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 do, and I'm like, I want to change a lane now because I want to move the steering wheel. And it's just so awesome because I'll visualize where I want to be. I would like to have a minivan one day and imagine driving the minivan to this music. And it's just, it's a lot of fun. All right. Very good. My sixth favorite score is John Powell's How to Train Your Dragon. Of course it is. Is it the this whole is a, thing? This is a great example of like, like no, it's not just a theme song. <laughs> There's welcome or this is burke burke. i think it's a piece there's oh what's it called unlikely friendship or or uh, there's there's the whole piece that is played during the montage when the main character whose name escapes me because it's late at night and i'm my brain is farting he is trying to get close to toothless yeah this is burke is the first one um forbidden friendship is the one i'm thinking of it is remarkable and, and absolutely stirring. It's such a such a great piece, Forbidden Friendship. And Test Drive, when they're flying for the first time. How to Train Your Dragon. I mean, it, 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 it somehow manages to incorporate bagpipes without being like, this is Braveheart or like <laughs> Fairy Scott. You know, it, it blends in so well and so beautifully and so stirringly. It's such a great score, and I love it so much. And I don't think I've heard anything else by John Powell that measures up. Yes, I, I found that that was my situation, too. Uh, the main character is Hiccup. Hiccup. Oh. Ugh. Again, late at night, brain farting. Uh, what is your fifth favorite score? My fifth is Theory of Everything by Johan Johansson. This is the perfect example of, you know, I'm not going to sit there and watch the film over and over and over again. But Good I film. can cert- Yes, it's fantastic. You know, I don't, I don't want to watch it all the time. I'd rather watch Ghostbusters all the time or, or something. Johan Johansson is one of those guys where uh, he's, this Iceland- he's an Icelandic composer and I just absolutely fell head over heels in love with him. And then I found out that he died. And I was so heartbroken, I even cried over his death, which is not... You know, I cried over 
Carrie Fisher's death, but I've never known a musician that I would cry over. And I definitely shed some tears here because he's so unique and wonderful and inspiring with his music. Uh, in theory of everything in particular, it, it's like a rush. You can feel like you're flying with him, but not as in an aircraft, you know, like what you would with Star Trek Into Darkness. You would, with uh, Johan Johansson, it feels like you're literally you could be running and taking off with your own body. Mm. And that is what it feels like to me. Mm. And it just feels like life rushing through, like with you, not even through you. he has very healing very unique sounding music and i just i really wish that we had more time with him he's a very atmospheric composer as well and yeah. I, I he also did arrival and sicario i was about to say i didn't expect of all his scores the theory of everything to be the one that would make your list i definitely expect it to be something like arrival yeah this is the perfect example of i love arrival it's my favorite film mm. of all time but as a score it doesn't stand by itself so it it didn't make it for myself. I really like his work, particularly with Sicario, but was not in consideration for this list and not love his work enough for me. So I'm, I know you love him and I'm so glad that he was able to make your list. My fifth favorite is by Randy Edelman of all people, not a mm. composer, you hear about very often and and not a composer whose body of work widely impresses me when I look at it, but I have always, always loved since it first came out or since I first saw the film, his score for Gettysburg. Oh. I own the CD. I've owned the CD for almost 20 years now. This is a 1993 film. And not only is it very much period appropriate, Civil War score, but one thing that's always struck me about it is it never it's never really felt like separate pieces to me. Hmm. It felt like 10 to 14 pieces that flow into each other that's naturally. Awesome. And you know, the main title is very strong. Again, you know, it's it's kind of period appropriate. So you get your big brasses and, and stuff. It's very, very, very military-like at times. Not modern military, but older military kind of thing. You just It just conjures these 
visuals of people in the 19th centuries, you know, marching and, and, you know, all these soldiers going off to war or doing battle with these old ass guns that took forever to load, you know, and, or had had bayonets on them. I just can't even imagine. absolutely love this score and i still do and i needed to make sure i did not forget this one and have it slip through the cracks in favor of all the hans zimmers and howard shores of of the universe so that's my fifth favorite gettysburg by randy edelman uh my number four is again by alan silvestri it is fern gully this is a smart album I can listen to it and I know exactly what's happening, when it's happening, which character, and sometimes even the dialogue that goes with it. I wasn't even considering this until I saw it was by Alan Silvestri and I thought, well, what was that like? Because it's years apart from Back to the Future and then uh, my other favorite, uh, Endgame. And... What he did was so clever. Fern Gully is a story about basically deforestation and it's an environmentally awareness movie mm-hmm. through the storytelling of fairies and a human shrinking and seeing things from their perspective. And wasn't he also like a, a logger or someone who worked for the company? He was, that- he was, you know, in charge of saying, cut this tree, this tree, and this mm. tree. Yeah. And. Within the score, you have the musical instruments going, but you also have nature sounds. And not only the sound effect of rain hitting mushrooms or leaves, but he's also got animal sounds coming in too. So you can listen to the whole album and you're getting that experience of nature. It's It feels like a forest. It's not just music that goes with a movie about a forest. It's the whole thing. So that is my number four, Fern Gully by Alan Silvestri. Did you consider the score to Avatar? I started listening to it. I was just kind of wondering. If Lady said it, no. <laughs> I was wondering if it was the same. No, it's, it's no. Okay. No. Uh, Apparently I did not like that one. Yeah. All right. So my fourth favorite score is by Carter Burwell. Now, Carter Burwell did a lot of scores for the Coen brothers. I'll be a little surprised if there's not a Carter Burwell on your list, my friend, as you are quite the Coen brothers fan. But for me, it was Carter Burwell's score for the Hudsucker Proxy. Uh, Of course it is. (laughs) I have at least four pieces, or no less than four pieces, from this movie on one playlist. 
because I love it so much from the hula hoop piece to the, you know, the introduction, the prologue. Yeah. There's so much that, mm, what's the word? The, not joyful, but there's something that's kind of innocent and fun about it. There's something that sort of has this throwback to the golden age, you know, the 1940s movies like his girl friday you know much like the movie does the way he uses like an oboe i think it is for tim robbins character to to indicate him (laughs) kind of moping about or whatever through the office i don't know i just love the hudsucker proxy score so much it's one of the reasons why i love that movie so much so it's my fourth favorite score by and this one's by carter burwell All right, my Hans Zimmer score. Here it comes. For number three, it is The Lion King. And it's not just Hans Zimmer, it's Libor M as well, helping create beautiful pieces that really feel authentically somehow, you know, in some way connected to the African continent. I love this land and Under the Stars is very charming and inspiring as well. I love the vocals that happen and this build in this land of Simba realizing he needs to go back to the Pride Lands and set things straight and he was the one that was meant to lead everyone and him realizing that he can do it is just beautiful and when he's running when the vocals come in it just it makes me so happy whenever i was homesick in my first two years living here i would listen to that piece and i would feel fine well shanna for a second there i really thought that while we both share avengers endgame on our list it is not on the same part of our list And I really thought for a second there that we were going to have the exact same score and the exact same spot on our respective lists. Because my third favorite score is also by Hans Zimmer. Oh, which one? And I did consider The Lion King, Mm. but, and I I considered Dark Knight, I, I considered a couple of his, but what ultimately is my favorite Hans Zimmer score is one I own Inception it was very hard for me not to choose that one why didn't you choose that one because ultimately what happened was a sentimental value Ah, fair enough fair enough Uh, no disrespect to the Lion King score whatsoever because if there is a Disney score I would have considered and did consider Mm. it especially is the Lion King score of all the Disney scores I, I you know when it comes to Disney movies I love more like the music catalog not so much I don't think about the scores when it comes to the animated features so but with Inception I have this score because not only are there the iconic pieces that people know with the blaring horns, you know, and such, and the uh, there is a piece in there. I can't remember what is it, it is. Is it time collapsing? It's dream a, collapsing and then time. 
I'll say what B says. Time, I think, is what I'm thinking okay. of. I think it's time. Time is the slow build. Yeah, that one. That also people think of. But you also, you have several other things, including like there's a there's a bit of a chase scene um, piece that's in there that works really well. And, well, the whole damn thing does. And it's it's up there with any of John Williams' work. Well, not any, <laughs> but a lot Let's of John. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. It yet. is up there for sure. You can stand... To, uh, shoulder to shoulder with a lot of John Williams work. So I absolutely love Inception. It's my third favorite score. All right. My number two is where my John Williams goes. It took, mm. it took me a long time to reevaluate. I knew which one I was going to go with. And then when I, you know, looked at what else he did, like encounters and Jaws, uh, Jaws and Indiana and, mm-hmm. you the know, list goes so on. Many, it just keeps going. Yeah. And so what I realized was, Oh no, so I went through everything and I was like, oh, a piece from this one, a piece from that one. But really what I land on is Jurassic Park because I could listen to the whole thing over and over again with the little one while he plays with dinosaurs and I won't lose my marbles. So this this is just a brilliant theme. It gets referenced in pop culture all the time. Family Guy does a brilliant little stunt with it where it's all Peter Griffin does. He's just humming the theme and it's hilarious. It doesn't matter what the situation is. It just feels like a score that spared no expense. <laughs> Very good. Maybe a uh, possible spoiler for a future John Williams favorites list? Eh. <laughs> yeah, mm, probably. Mm, mm. <laughs> uh, my second favorite score is by Alan Silvestri. I think oh, maybe is that the your only, second one? I think maybe the only composer that made it managed to make it on my list twice. It is Back to the Future. Yay! I'm, I I I'll be honestly shocked if Back to the Future is not on your list because how can you deny the score <laughs> to Back to the Future? Really, you know, you got the main title, but you also have the chase sequence. I don't know. There's there's so many elements to the score that just get you so swept up and get me so swept up and um and sometimes even on its own like i have strong feelings when i listen to that that score you know and also it's one where you listen to it and you can visualize what's happening on screen too right so yes definitely I'm playing it in my head right now. Yeah, it's it's a great. <laughs> it is one of the greatest movie scores ever made. It is my second favorite. Back to the Future by Alan Silvestri. Jenna, through all this time, <laughs> all this work, what did you discover to be your favorite score? It's really interesting that you mentioned Back to the Future. It's a great score. But what I land on, and it's for the fun of it, for the ability to party to it, for the memories that are attached to it, uh, for the power it has to help me visualize and remember the entire movie plus dialogue, blah, 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 blah. Mm. Why wouldn't it be by Elmer Bernstein, Ghostbusters? This 
is, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, whenever we're listening to scores, if a Ghostbusters piece comes on by Elmer Bernstein, I'm back in the bathroom dancing to it. I don't know how a person dances to anything beyond the uh, Who You Gonna Call song. The Ray but, Parker Jr. Yeah, song? But I can. Yeah. <laughs> I can party down to all of the pieces of music. Not that that song is part of the score. No, it's not. But what I'm saying is <laughs> I could dance to that, but I dance harder to the score. Mm. And it just... Particularly Judgment Day or Judgment it's Night. It's so freaking fun. Mm. Like, I I listen to it and I look at the phone and I see the picture and I just start laughing mm. at this piece of music. There's no other piece of music that I'll hear that'll make me start giggling and be happy. Well, and also, I think a lot of people, you know, they think of the Ray Parker Jr. song, but they mm-hmm. I don't think a lot of people realize what the actual theme to Ghostbusters is. Yeah. mysterious and then it's like oh we better get up the stairs quickly and you can just there's so much happening in that little piece of music i would have been shocked if it's not on your list we'll talk about other ones i'm shocked aren't you on your list in a moment (laughs) here but first my favorite score actually this is here's one i I can't believe it's not on your list danny elfman first of all because it's not my favorite of that franchise Batman? Yeah, of the existence of Batman. Oh, my God. It's not my favorite one. It is the one. one that you always pop in on. You're always excited when you hear <laughs> it. You love the Batman animated series, which co-opted this theme from this movie. <laughs> and they wear it better. <laughs> Still, yeah, Danny Elfman's Batman is just as iconic as almost any other score that we've mentioned mm-hmm. on here. Uh, maybe more so than than a lot of them. Um, it's probably the most important franchise uh, one. Yeah, it's maybe know. a little more important but than Ava- the Avengers theme. Fair enough. Yeah, uh, this is one of the greatest things. I, I looked at Danny Elfman's work, and mm-hmm. there was probably about four that I took into consideration. And I had to ultimately uh, realize that none of his other work, as as much as I love some of them, compare to that brass that that crescendoing brass Mm -hmm. in in his batman theme for example especially and and everything else the staccato uh, elements of it it has a sort of a a momentum to it i almost said a march but it's like a momentum to his uh score anyway 
I love it. Danny Elfman's Batman. I know I'm not alone in loving uh, this score. It is it is my favorite. John Williams pieces notwithstanding. So Shanna, I'm shocked that Inside Out's not on your list. Another oh, we're one. We're gonna just jump into shocks. Okay, cool. Well, just really briefly, Inside Out is not on your list. Another one where like you hear three notes from that and you know it yes yeah i uh, can't believe that um back to the future is not on your list terminator 2 yeah. isn't on your list what other sacrificial lambs <laughs> do you have uh in constructing this list what first of all what were the ones that just were outside of it like were really oh, hard man. to leave off it was really hard to leave off inception back to the future Beauty and the Beast by Alan Menken, uh, The Hours by Philip Gloss. If Beale Street could talk, Nicholas Bertal, I, I love his work. But, you know, I have so much stronger connections with the 12 that have been mentioned. Terminator 2 was obviously, it just fell out. What else have we got? Portrait of a Lady on Fire. The score to Wendy. Unfortunately, I can't recall who did that now. But uh, Co-written by Ben Zeitlin, who also did the score to the Beast of, Beast of the Southern Wild. Wild. Yes. Let's see, are there... There are others. You know, the thing with uh, Hans Zimmer is I like his Sherlock Holmes score. I love The Holiday. I think Maestro is one of the best pieces in that one. Hmm. It's just so sweet. And I don't know, maybe it's a homage to composers. Godzilla was thought about. The Untouchables was mentioned. How I Had to Let That Go. Fantastic Mr. Fox. Spotlight by Howard Shore. So Howard Shore did not get featured. Danny Elfman's Beetlejuice. I think that that one's just so wonderful. Mm. Pink Panther by Henry Mancini. Mancini. Uh, Mancini. And I I loved the show as a kid. So the cart- the animated show. And then Carter Burwell. Which, by the way, co-opted from the Peter Sellers movies. Ah. Carter Burwell, Three Billboards. That fell out. James Newton Howard with Sixth Sense. Mm. And who else have we got here? I mean, Randy Newman had a bunch of stuff. I love his work with James and the Giant Peach. Mm. Parenthood, Toy Story, obviously. And then Jerry Goldsmith with Gremlins. I mean, uh-huh. you know, do, 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 do. Do, do. and then it's stuck in my head for like two years so yeah that one has been overplayed by us yes <laughs> and to the point where like i do not want to hear well, that what is it, a harpsichord or whatever i don't yeah. want to hear those ever notes again for until we watch the movie a while yeah and nicholas Bertal's uh, moonlight is one of my favorites mm. alan silvestri's practical magic is one of my favorites huh. and you know, and then <laughs> there's pieces that'll play, and you'd be like, "Is that practical magic?" And I'm like, "No, I, I do not have practical magic." Yeah, on my like, playlist. why would you have it? <laughs> and then Marco Beltrami uh, with Logan is really good. Mm. Anything by that Pixar does, I love. Mm. Which is mostly Michael Giacchino. So. <laughs> yeah, he did Ratatouille also. I don't mm-hmm. know if that was a consideration for you. No. But. So the ones that just. I could not get on the list that like really were up there guys was Hans Zimmer's man of steel. One where I hear it and I get it stuck in my head. Yeah. Flight is a great one. There's, there's several on that score. I decided it is my second favorite Hans Zimmer score. Honestly, Mm. it's like inception man of steel and then maybe dark Knight and lion King. I think that's kind of how that works for me. 
So Man of Steel didn't, uh, it was just, it was like number 13 for me. And Yo Morricone, I'm really glad that he made your list. I'm so impressed because The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly, I, I have to acknowledge, like, as much as I love The Untouchable Score, and I really love The Untouchable Score, it's, uh, you know, there's a couple pieces from The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly that are just genius, absolute genius, and it's as perfect as movie scores ever get. It's it's so brilliant. And it's the closest I'm going to get to liking a Western. <laughs> Is the score. Fair enough. <laughs> uh, also, Clint Mansell and the Kronos Quartet's Requiem for a Dream. So close. That was in my top 10 for a while. That just barely did not make my list. I love that. That's another one that gets stuck in my head when I hear it. This, you know, quartet doing do 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 It's so, mm. oh my God, I love it so much. I've loved it ever since I saw that movie. Dick Tracy is a score by, I think Danny Elfman did that one as well. Yeah, it Th- sounds like that would be him. I, no one talks about that one. And I absolutely have always loved that score to uh, Dick Tracy. It, it's so good. So, so good. The Rocketeer by James Horner. I, I didn't realize how much by James Horner, I love. Uh, Rocketeer is definitely one I've always loved. There's something very romantic and also superhero-y and stirring about the Rocketeer score. Pirates of the Caribbean. Not the sequel work, but the original by Klaus Badelt. Uh, That's the one I typically think of when I think of the Pirates of the Caribbean score the dun 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 see that one got overplayed for me i totally understand yeah that's another one like hunt for october when that comes on (laughs) uh you turn and you run yes sometimes out the building terminator 2 i did not realize i always thought that was a james horner thing the terminators i did not realize it was by a composer by the name of brad feidel who did not do a whole lot of other things so uh that's one unbreakable um, oh yeah that's a pretty good I one i love 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 james newton howard's unbreakable my favorite of his work i also like uh, six cents and my girl thought about those thought about ghostbusters uh dune by i was gonna say that was, that gets stuck in the head for sure yes uh, uh vangelis vangelis mm-hmm. is his name uh, that actually more recently like is one reason why I need a score detox because there's at least three days, three different days in the past oh. two weeks where that song is on repeat through the whole day in my head. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I do love that. Don't love the movie. Do love that, though. And and that's what also is also so interesting about scores is you could not like the movie but absolutely adore the score. Yeah, that movie Antebellum is a really good example of that. Incredibly too. good example. Yeah, yeah. So uh, sad. Randy Newman, you mentioned I mm-hmm. landed on Pleasantville as my favorite mm-hmm. Randy Newman score. Toy Story, of course, is undeniable, but. You know, there's a lot of non-score that he did that's great about uh, Toy Story, but I do love Pleasantville's score by him. I am surprised that you did not have Social Network on your list. Ha ha. 
told you. <laughs> That's rude. <laughs> uh, no, Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross's uh, social network is fantastic. Love that. Other ones I took into consideration, John Carpenter's Halloween. Uh, Vangelis also apparently did Chariots of Fire, which we both learned and realized. You seem to make a big deal out of that. Kind of surprised that didn't uh, come close to your list. Well, I respect it as one of those pieces that... I mean, we would always hear it when we were kids, mm. you know, and I never knew what it was from. And then our very first film study that we did was Chariots of Fire. And that's where the song came from. But because we grew up hearing the song in so many other ways, most of the class was like, no, that's not where it comes from. Mm. So it deserves respect. Monty Norman and John Barry's Dr. No, which is where the James Bond theme came from, was a strong consideration for me because... It's the fucking James Bond theme. I love that. Marco Bertrami. Yes, Logan. Uh, Free Solo. A Quiet Place also. Jerry Goldsmith. You mentioned Gremlins. I will counter with Total Recall, which is awesome. Yes. Carter. uh, (laughs) A.R. Rahman. Uh, I love 127 Hours. Also love his work for Slumdog Millionaire. Carter Burwell. uh, You mentioned Three Billboards, but True Grit is also a great one. James Horner. Easily one of my three favorite composers now of all time because I realized he did Star Trek II The Wrath of Khan. He did Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, one I can't believe is not on your list because that's another well, one. because I picked Land Before Time. You always come in whenever that plays. You're very excited about that. Apollo 13, Braveheart, and Titanic. I own the Titanic score. It's a great score. Uh, Silvestri, he also did Forrest Gump and Predator. Hello. That's a great one. Rachel Porter, the only female composer that has any work that I really love, unfortunately. Never Let Me Go. Love her work on Never Let Me Go. With Danny Elfman, I also considered Spider-Man probably my third favorite of his. There's also Men in Black and you mentioned Beetlejuice. And Howard Shore, Lord of the Rings. Uh, I also love Spotlight, as you mentioned, on Alexander Desplat. It was either Godzilla or Little Women for me. I kind of love Godzilla more, but it didn't make my list. Charlie Chaplin, City Lights, Modern Times, The Kid. And uh, that's that's about the, the gist of it. What are your favorite scores? Email us at gibsonreview at gmail.com. Let us know also what you think of our favorites. All right, Shanna, before we get to the next episode, why don't you share with people where they can find you online? You can find me on Instagram at Shanna underscore Paxton underscore photography and on Thick Chart Spellbinding A. Excellent. Go to thegibsonreview.com to find all features and past episodes of the movie lovers and uh, past reviews as well on there. You'll also find things like the Disney Through the Years, which I'm hoping to get back in the saddle on soon. Uh, I hit Disney Burnout, so I'm really focusing on the animated movies and hoping to get through those. Instagram, the Gibson 99. We do bracket polls there. We just squeezed in a 2005 bracket poll. Your favorite 2005 movie was... Christopher Nolan's Batman Begins. You can go to Facebook slash the Gibson Review as well. And also, like Shanna, you can find me on Flickchart, the Gibson 99. Next time on The Movie Lovers. Shanna, do you know what we're doing on, on The Movie Lovers next time? Are we doing franchises because of Eternals? We are doing both of those things. Our, our main event review will be Marvel's The Eternals. Looking forward to that. Heard great things. And 
film faves will be our favorite franchises perfect marriage with one of the biggest franchises ever the mcu it'll be interesting to see if that ends up having to be a combined list if we have so many similarities in terms of our favorite franchises or not we'll have to wait and see about that you can find that episode on tuesday november 9th until then keep loving the movies this is jeff and shanna saying bye-bye